0: Welcome to Mythos, an audio journey through the folklores and mythologies of the world.
1: Welcome to Lore Britannia series of Mythos, where we explore the fascinating folklore of England,
0: Ireland, Scotland and Wales, both ancient and contemporary. The story you're about to hear is from Vanessa Wolfe of London Dreamtime. London Dreamtime Story Nights are secret storytelling adventures in hidden corners of London. Vanessa tells eerie, exciting, scary, and fantastical stories for adults in London's forgotten corners. Derelict buildings, muddy foreshores, empty foot tunnels, urban forests, and midnight cemeteries. They often include live music and are usually only lit by candles. Different events run every month. And details are on www.londondreamtime.com backslash calendar.
1: My name's Vanessa. When I was a kid, I used to slip away from school and walk around exploring London on my own. I used to look at all the grand buildings with their intriguing details and secret corners. And sometimes I'd meet fascinating characters, but mostly I'd just be on my own. And I'd make up my own stories about these places in my head. When I grew up, I became a storyteller. And although I tell myths and legends and folktales from all around the world for a living, my heart is in stories which grow out of London. London's complexity, diversity, beauty and magnificence, and its ugliness too. The story that I've chosen comes from a bizarre urban legend which has grown up around a certain large and unusual looking locked tomb in Brompton Cemetery. There's no key. Before you listen to this, have a look at the tomb online. It will help you to picture the story in your head as it unfolds. I also need to tell you that the story grew partly as a collaboration with Stephen Coates' Who's a musician and psychogeographical explorer? This story is called Portals and Pathways, and they do say that when you're a newborn baby, you have a thousand portals open in your head to the energy and information of the cosmos and that by the time you're one year old all of those pathways have had to be closed and sealed so that you can be sane take your place in society but they do say that a traumatic event can burst one of those doorways open again and the information can start flowing again anyway Our story is about ancient Egypt. And what you need to know about ancient Egypt is that they saw the world very, very differently to the way that we see it. They thought about things differently. Um, So, for example, you know that they believed that it was your actual physical body that went into the next world. So that's why they mummified your body, because they believed you needed your body, because your body went in the next world. But they didn't seem to mind at all that your body was in the tomb. So it was in the tomb and in the next world simultaneously. It was in two places at the same time. And if you think about their gods, um, so let's think about the god Thoth the god of wisdom and learning. So he's commonly portrayed as an ibis, a bird, you know, the birds with the long beaks. Um, And sometimes he's shown as a man with a bird's head. Sometimes he's just shown as a man. And sometimes he's shown completely as a bird. Now, with our, our way of thinking, with our way of seeing the world, to us that would mean that he was a shapeshifter, sometimes a man and sometimes a bird, or that he was half a man and half a bird. But it wasn't like that for them. Their brains could completely conceive that he could be a man and a bird simultaneously. Anyway, our story starts in January 1848, middle of the 19th century, in a place called Handstown, which is where Sloan Square is now. But unlike Sloan Square, Handstown was not at all posh. Um, Just imagine soot-blackened Georgian terraces, cobbled streets thick with mud and horse manure. It was when you really needed those boot scrapers. And imagine that it was starting to get dark on a January evening. So at the top of one of the houses, Joseph Bonamy had his artist's studio. So he's a very famous, um, well-known artist and architect, curator of the Soane Museum. But he liked to have his artist studio right there at the top of the house, tucked away in Hanstown, so that people wouldn't disturb him and bother him. He didn't even want his family or servants disturbing him. And he was up there at January 1848. And it was starting to get dark. He was surrounded by all his sketches and drawings from his time in Egypt. And he was just starting to think it was Time to light a lamp when there was a knock at the door. So he wasn't expecting anybody and he didn't really want to see anybody, but he went to open it and standing in the hallway outside was a man who he had never seen before. Um, Unlike Bonamy, who was was Italian background and he was dark and thin. But this stranger was plump and uh, fair and he had a very loud checked overcoat on. And he bowed and he said, My name is Warner. We haven't met before, but we have a mutual friend, Miss Courtoy. I need to come in. I've got very bad news for you. And he barged in and he sat himself down without being invited. And he said, You know, Miss Courtoy, I'm very sorry to say she's dead. She died last week. And Bonamy said... is death. Oh, well, said one well her uh, quite um of course but uh I I don't think that you've known her that long you see I don't think perhaps you knew her when she was a young woman when she was a young woman she was really something. You she used to have these parties everybody was there um poets were there politicians were there she used to wear these wonderful gowns and it was everything was glittering her she was a beautiful young woman, once. And Bonamy said, I knew her as a grey-haired old woman. And I always thought she was the most intelligent human being I'd ever met. She seemed to see things other people didn't see. Huh, well said, Warner, as a matter of fact, that's why I'm here. You see, I think she saw something about you because we talked a lot in the last few weeks before she died and she told me about you and she said you had a secret that you've never told anybody um, and that she, that she said that you and I should work together and she has left money in her will for you and I to work together, hmm? So what do you think? S- um, I'm sorry to disappoint you, said me, but I don't have any... There is no great secret. She was a very old woman. Thank you for giving me the news. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave because I have some very very pressing matters. Wait, wait, said Warner. You're not, you're not going to let me tell you what she told me before she died? Most extraordinary tale. And it concerns you. Listen, did you know? You, I told you that I knew her when she was a young woman. But before even I met her, she was pregnant um, with a boy. As a very young woman she gave birth to a boy and she told me it didn't it didn't go well and she told me as a very young woman holding her baby in her hands as he was being born and dying and looking into her baby's precious eyes at that moment suddenly she said it was as if a door Opened in her head, and she suddenly understood that life and death and time and space were just facets of a great cosmic jewel. And she buried her son, and as you know, she went on to have daughters. But she told me never for one second did she forget that moment of revelation, what she'd seen and understood. And she became secretly very fascinated with the experiments of Aldini. You've heard of Aldini? Um, So I don't know if you actually have heard of Aldini, but just to say that um, he was a scientist who worked with dead human bodies, applying what was then the absolute latest in technology, which was electricity, electrostatic electricity, um, to make these dead bodies move. And he had a very famous demonstration with scientists coming from all over the world in about 1818. And um, he made this dead body uh, sit up and start moving its face and making sounds. And there was a janitor who was watching, um, watching the whole demonstration through a crack in the door. The janitor saw it and promptly died of fright. So anyway, that's Aldini. And as it happened, Bonamy had heard of him. She became obsessed with the experiments of Aldini and she contacted her own scientists and commissioned them to push at the boundaries of life and death and time and space and she said they found some very interesting things but she said people were always questioning them and bothering them and disturbing them and then You remember in 1840, they cleared all those market gardens in Brompton and they built that, the new modern cemetery. Well, she purchased a plot in the centre of it, shielded all around by trees, Um, nominally uh, a tomb for herself and her daughters. But it was never intended to be a tomb. It was a laboratory where her chosen scientists could work, peacefully without being disturbed after dark with a plentiful supply of bodies if they needed them and she said they they had some fascinating results but nothing conclusive and in the end she closed the project down but she told me about you and she said that you have a secret that you've never told anybody. And she said, with your secret knowledge and my technical know-how, we could work together and make the breakthrough that she was looking for. We could change the world, and she has left a substantial amount of money in her will to pay for it. So, what do you think? And Bonomi said... I I do know who you are I read about you in the newspaper didn't I you were the one who invented that flying bomb and I remember you wanted from the British government what was it 22,000 pounds they didn't pay you though did they we could never work together, you understand? You are interested in war and money and maybe fame. I am only interested in the truth. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Amorna said I'm interested in the truth but it was too late. Bonamy was already pushing him out of the door and the last thing that he did before he left the studio, Warner handed over his visiting card and said, if you change his mind, Bonamy shut the door and listened to the footsteps going down the stairs. And he went and sat in his chair, shaking all over. He didn't light a lamp, although it was completely dark. He lit his pipe and he drew deeply on it. And the smoke left him and curled up against the cracked sooty glass of the window to where there was a little gap at the top. And the smoke seeped up into the infinite universe. And Bonamy thought about his secret. That somehow, Hannah Courtois had Seen, recognised something. Somehow she knew because he hadn't told her. Hadn't told anybody, not even his wife. How could you tell somebody such a big secret? You couldn't burden someone with such a big secret. And I don't know about you, but if you think about secrets that you've had, I mean, the thing about secrets is that they want to be told and the more Bonamy thought about this secret the the more the opportunity to tell it just seemed so tempting to share it and eventually only a couple of weeks later of it eating away at him only a couple of weeks later much against his better judgement Bonamy got in touch Samuel Warner. They met at the gates of Brompton Cemetery at midnight and Warner had a key that Hannah Courtois had given him and they let themselves in silently and they went through the absolutely dark cemetery to the centre which was shielded with evergreen trees and in in the centre of the trees you know there's this, this huge tomb and uh, Warner had a key for that as well and uh, he opened the door and they, they crept in and they closed it on themselves so they were in complete darkness in there until Warner lit a lamp and by the flickering of the flame you could see the inside of the tomb. Well, I mean, it wasn't a tomb. There, it was full of the absolute latest for the time. What was the latest technical equipment Um, everything in wooden boxes and brass implements everything to make electrical uh, power and to channel it and there was a slab like a mortuary slab in the middle and there were um, glass jars Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen them they've got um, plates inside and they're full of battery acid this is what batteries would have looked like maybe as big as your head or even bigger than that Anyway, Warner sat on one stool, Bonamy sat on the other. They looked at each other. Warner said, You can tell me now. Bonamy closed his eyes. And he said, Egypt was hot and brilliant, full of vibrant exotic colours and smells and back then when we went it was the most exciting place in the world. We were the first Europeans to go to these places to see these things with our own eyes and the first translations were starting to come through of the Rosetta Stone and we were starting to realise these little pictograms were not, they weren't just pictures. We could translate them, we could start to hear the voices of those who had been dead for thousands of years so exciting. We went everywhere. I drew everything, even though the paper was sometimes so damp with humidity that I would scratch it and break it with my pencil. And we bought everything, everything old we could find from everybody. The time flew past. I must have sent sheaves, hundreds, maybe even thousands of drawings back to London. They wanted them. Everybody was so interested. And after we'd been there two years... It was the evening and this little girl came up to me in the market. She wanted to sell me, she must have heard, we were were buying things. And she pulled it out, she said it was very old, this amulet. And as soon as I saw it, I knew it was, it was beyond old. It was maybe twice as old as the oldest thing we had. And I could feel its power right there in the marketplace. And I was so excited, I just offered what she what she asked. I didn't even haggle. So she was pleased. She ran off with the money. And I put it in my top pocket and I thought... I will go to Robert Hay, who was the leader of the expedition. Young man. We were all young. So I went to him the next day uh, to show him, but he started telling me about uh, the Society for Antiquities or something and he was obsessed with what people thought of him in London and we argued and uh, I didn't show him the amulet and the next time I went to him we argued about money and I didn't show it to him it seemed that every time I went to see him we would argue about something and in the end I never showed it to him. And we went our separate ways. We travelled separately. And I drew and I sketched another thousand or ten thousand pictures. And you know, they were so hungry for them in London. They wanted them so much. But do you know what they wanted them for? They wanted to put them on curtains. For the wrappers of soap. Put them on dressing gowns. And the fronts of factories. Nobody cared what they meant. Nobody cared about what had produced them. I was battling on my own. And it started to take its toll on my health. And eventually my health was broken. I had a sickness after fever after sickness. And I realised that if I was going to live, I would have to book my journey back to foggy, dirty, cold, sooty London. And so I did. And on the night before I was due to travel back, I had a headache and I went into the medicine box but it was empty except at the bottom there was opium (laughs) I'd never taken it I didn't know what it did except that it was a painkiller so I put some grains in my pipe and I smoked them well my headache gone and I thought I would take a walk around Cairo, say goodbye to the alleyways and streets that I loved so much, so I went down. Everything was lit up. It was so beautiful. Everything was shining. And I thought how I wished to see the Great Pyramid that I'd drawn so many times. And before I knew anything, I was there, walking towards it, in the moonlight, scaling the great front of it, climbing up to that little narrow entrance which was open, and you know, Mr. Warner, when I went in, there were so many doorways open in that pyramid, I turned to the first one, it was dark and I so low I had to bow my head to go into it. And I went down, it fell away in front of me, stairway going down into the heart of the pyramid And when I got to the bottom I was in a a chamber open above to the stars and by their light I could see the whole of every inch of the walls covered in golden hieroglyphics and I wanted more than I have ever wanted anything. I wanted to understand. Not a translation not a third-hand dictation. I wanted to know what this meant, what had produced it, what it meant to the scribes and the magicians that had put it there. And just then I heard a noise. Someone was coming down the stairs after me. Someone was following me. And I turned to the doorway and through it walked a man... Uh, so he looked like any labourer in Cairo except that his body was the body of a bird covered in feathers and his arms were the wings of a bird his legs were the legs of a bird and his head was the head of an ibis he was the god of wisdom Thoth and I thought let him me on the head with his beak and i will know everything let him tap me on the head with his beak and he turned towards me and he came right up to me and he leaned forward and with his long beak he pierced my shirt between my ribs and into my heart and suddenly i understood Everything. I could read every word that was written and I knew why it was there. I knew its real, true purposes. I understood everything I had ever seen or sketched or drawn. And I knew perfectly what that mysterious amulet was and what it was for, what its power was. And then I woke up. And I was lying on the floor of the room, the upstairs room in Cairo. And my headache was back, but worse. And it was time for me to start my journey. But here is my secret. All that knowledge is still in my head. I understand it all. And... Warner said, it's in your pocket, isn't it? Go on, it's in your pocket now, isn't it? Let me see. So Bonamy put his hand in his top pocket and he pulled out an amulet in the shape of Anubis and the power of it as it was laying down on that slab. It seemed to pull the whole room into it and ex- excrete it again. He laid the amulet down on the table and the power of that amulet in the shape of of Anubis was such that it seemed to suck the whole room in and both men were very excited and Warner said what is it what what does it do that said Bonamy is what we would call the engine of a of a machine a machine to bridge life and death And time and space. And Warner said, Could this be a time machine? No, said Barnaby. No, it's not. Because the ancient Egyptians did not understand time as we do. To their minds, Time was not a a line with the past over here and the present in the middle and the future uh, over there sometimes um, with with us travelling from one to another. For them, time was a constant now or perhaps more a circle returning to the same spot endlessly. They would have no use or concept of of a time machine, but... They were hemmed in on either side by the desert. They could only travel freely up and down the Nile. This is why Egyptian culture did not spread all over Africa. Because they couldn't travel. Because this had not been built. Because this was intended to be the engine of a, uh, what what we would call a, a, a space machine. To transport you with great speed from one place to another. Oh, said Warner, well, of course, now we have steam trains and uh, steamships. Wait, he said, when you say, um, great speed, how fast would this happen? Oh, said Bonomi, it would be instant. Uh, oh said Warner so um, huh, well if this is a machine um, the engine of a machine then uh, it must have a lever to operate it how do you turn it on where's the where's the on switch how do you make it go oh that's simple said Warner me to operate it you just say the name of Anubis the, the true name not the Greek name Ah, said Warner. And uh, so what is the name? But Bonamy would not tell him. Obviously, he's not going to give him the, um, that powerful word, the name of Anubis. However, by that time, both men were crazy with excitement. And both of them were completely up for the next step. Building, bringing into reality this what they called a space machine but I suppose we would call it a teleport so although they were both very interested in building it they had very different motivations so for Bonamy it was all about bringing to fruition many thousands of years of thought making it into a reality Uh, whereas for Warner of course motivations were slightly different they could see the commercial possibilities, so they worked together using money left to them by Hannah Courtoy. And the first thing uh, Bonamy, the artist, did was fix this precious amulet to the wall of the inside of this tomb, and then cover the entire wall with paintings of um, spells, um, hieroglyphics. And Warner, who was the practical one, he actually realigned the entire tomb so that instead of being north south east and west as it had been it was now in line with where the pole star used to be in ancient egyptian times and of course if you have a teleport there's no point in having just one you need to have another one and warner who was a great showman understood the value of a really dramatic demonstration and so they bought another tomb in montmartre cemetery in paris to be the other end, the receiving capsule. And uh, they, they they went. They made the travel, and they made the journey, they realigned that, they painted that, and all of this took a lot of time and a lot of money. In fact, they used up all of the money that had left to them by Hannah Courtois. And they were working in their spare time and they were working at night. And after five years of this, they were ready... And Warner was continually pressing Bonamy for the the name to make it go. But the closer they got to the end point, it seemed that the more Bonamy was reluctant to share this last step, he wouldn't say. He'd just say things like, oh, well, it would be like striking it with a bolt of lightning, a release of extreme power, he would say, and no more than that. He must have been a difficult man to work with. Now, Samuel Warner was in debt. He had ten children. And if you look at his accounts, you will see that he was in debt to every single tradesman and he had large debts to his friend and to a bank. Debt can do funny things to a man. And I think it did in this case. Warner just started to think and think And eventually he thought, I don't need this name. We can use modern technology. We can use electricity. And he invented something. He had already invented something, which was in one of those um, lovely wooden boxes, that you could uh, turn the wheel and uh, that would rub uh, silk against glass and it would create a very, very big electrostatic charge. A very high voltage spark. And so... In December 1853, he took this thing himself to the t- to the um, cemetery gates and them himself at midnight, let himself in. By himself, he went to the tomb. He let himself in. He had gold in his pocket to spend in Paris. He had a ham sandwich in the other pocket for the journey he had his big colourful checked overcoat so he pulled the door closed lit the lamp and then he unpacked his wooden box and he turned the handle furiously and then he leaned forward with the wire and a huge brilliant blue spark leapt across to the amulet And the next day, he did not come home. Nor did he the next day, nor was there any word from Paris on that day or any other day. And after a couple of weeks, Bonamy got to hear that his collaborator had disappeared and he put two and two together and that night he took himself at midnight, he let himself into the cemetery, he took himself to the tomb and he went to unlock it but he didn't need to use the key because the door was just closed too, it wasn't even locked. And when he opened it and lit the lamp, he saw the most dreadful sight. Um, all the electrical equipment was all over the floor. And do you remember I told you about the batteries, the the jars? The battery acid and the plates had been poured all over the floor. And these glass jars were now full of intestines and lungs and brains. And there was a dish uh, with gold in it. Another dish with a ham sandwich. And lying on the slab perfectly, beautifully, immaculately mummified was the body of Samuel Warner as if done by the loving hands of Anubis himself covered in spells and Bonamy started to read the spells starting at the top and working his way down And as he did, he started to to shake his head and back away. And then he just closed the door, locked it and went that night immediately to the Thames at Chelsea and he threw the keys in and they've never been recovered. So uh, that was the end of that and uh, uh, Bonamy did not go to Samuel Warner's Hasty funeral. If you look him up on Wikipedia, you will see um, Samuel Warner is just um, listed as died of mysterious circumstances. So um, that's all they say about him. But Bonamy knew that coffin they were burying was empty. His body was not in the coffin. Warner's body was lying on the slab inside the tomb. Uh, Well, it was, but it was also stepping between life and death and time and space for eternity.
0: Hi everyone, Nicole Schmidt here, the creator of Mythos Podcast. The narrative approach of Mythos takes hours of careful research and script writing. So I've taken the plunge to reduce my hours at work, to dedicate more time, to supplement my income, to increase the amount of time I can spend on the podcast, and ultimately to make the project sustainable for the long term, I've started a Patreon campaign, which, if you don't know what Patreon is, it's an online platform on which artists um, can receive monthly financial support from patrons. If you can be a monthly patron, even for as little as $2 a month, please do so. Rewards for patronage range from special supplementary episodes available only to patrons to ebooks of my show scripts. Simply go to Patreon, type Mythos Podcast into the search engine, and pledge what you can. The link will also be on my webpage at www.mythospodcast.com. In fact, if you could be one of the 500 listeners who pledges support in the top two tiers at $5 or $10 a month, I could do this full-time, putting out bi-weekly episodes, special patrons-only content, and could even start planning live shows. We've got a very big and fascinating world to travel together in this podcast. And I want to explore folkloric realms with you for years to come. In fact, the first 20 of my mythic travelers who make a monthly pledge, even for as little as $2 a month, will get a thank you postcard in the mail. And thank you very much for considering becoming a patron.